And we are reading in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1017. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You will have already noticed that that's the last text in this book. And Lord willing, this will be the last time we will look at it, at least in this series that we're in. My hope is to conclude the book of First Peter this morning, and and then the first of November, or first of October we'll start a new direction, and Lord willing we will begin a study in the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin to chomp into that book, and it's going to take us a while. My anticipation is that Hebrews will will be a long series, and so there will be periods of time in the midst of that where we'll break into it. And we'll have many kinds of series at different times. For instance, around Easter, uh, possibility around uh, Christmas time and other periods of time. We may take short breaks from that book, but over the long haul, we're going to walk through the book, uh, the book of Hebrews. It's about the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of the salvation that he brings to us. Uh, one of the reasons that I want to go to, to Hebrews is because I think... Um, it is incredibly important to see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, One of the things that we sometimes hear people say is, I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like that Old Testament God very much. That's not good theology. It's the same God. They're not different gods. And, And when you begin to see how the Old Testament is a picture of what is to come in the New Testament, you start to see those connections and how they're tied together. It strengthens our faith. It helps us to see the Bible as one story. And so, Lord willing, that's where we're headed, into the book of Hebrews. And that will begin the first Sunday of October. In the meantime, we have the Burgosses that are going to be here next week. The following week, we have to attend a family uh, wedding, so we'll be away. And then we'll have one more Sunday before we launch into the book of Hebrews. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're planning Lord willing to go, and you may want to begin reading that book. Just start chewing on it. Start reading that that uh, longer book in the New Testament. And it is not an easy book. Um, it, it will it will take some time and some real diligence to to dig out of it what God has for us. But I'm excited for that. But now this morning we're going to finish up here in First Peter in this series on standing firm. And last week, you'll remember that as we came to the Lord's table, which we do once a month here at Richland, um, we 
we spoke briefly about the text, the part of this text where it talks about elders shepherding the flock of God. And we gave an admonition really to the leaders here of the church and anybody who who may be in that position one day here at Richland. Um, There's some strong words that, that Peter gives to those elders because he knows that that the way that the leaders go is the way the church ultimately would go. Leadership is incredibly important in a church. It is incredibly important. Um, in fact, one of the things, as we, as we studied this whole eldership concept that we've moved to, as I said before, we, we moved to a, a plurality of elders model. We had been functioning to some degree in that, but we really hadn't labeled it that totally and had not done all the functions of it. And so we're learning as we go along. But one of the things in the midst of the study that we took, a several month study as we made preparation to make that shift to a plurality of elders form of leadership within this body was that one of the admonitions that continually seemed to crop up, sometimes directly, the statement was directly made, but in other places there were inferences of it, and that was that you're, in, a, in that particular thing, you're slow to put people into eldership, but you're quick to remove them if a problem arises. You're slow to put them in, but you're quick to make a change if there's a need of a change. Um, why? Because because leadership is so important. It should not be taken lightly. It's not a popularity contest. It is so crucial to the church. And, and the, the requirements of it are such that you don't want to just flippantly run into it. Here in this text, it, it says some strong things. And here he's exhorting the elders. He exhorts them. And he says, shepherd the flock of God. Leadership, eldership is about sacrifice. To shepherd is to sacrifice. A shepherd sacrifices for his sheep. And shepherds of the flock of God need to know that part of the requirement means sacrifice. You are sacrificing for the good of the body in the position. Um, And then it gives some specific uh, admonitions. And just quickly to remind you of those, it says not under compulsion. It should not be gone into under compulsion. You don't twist somebody's arm. You don't force them into that kind of a position and and to serve in that way. It's not to be that kind of a service. That sacrifice in in many ways is to be an eager kind of sacrifice, um, a willing sacrifice, a willingness to, to, uh, to live with excellence and to do it well. You don't have to be coerced to do your best or to give your best. You just eagerly give your best for the sake of others and for the sake of the body. And you do it when no one is noticing. I'll say a little bit more about that later. You do it when it's not fun, when it's not easy. Um, That's what leadership is about, particularly in the church of God. It's not for shameful gain, the scripture says a little earlier. It says uh, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. It, it is not about you. One of the things that must undergird an elder, a leader in the church, is it is not about you. It's not about your agenda. It's not about how you feel. It's not about taking your temperature. It's about the body. It's about the greater good. And, and being willing to put aside things for the greater good. Um, it's not domineering. It's done gently, 
You don't push your weight around because you have a position. You humbly, humbly, gently lead by example, the scripture says. Um, We lead by example. And one of the things about a leader, one of the things about the requirements of a leader is they don't have to be artificially propped up. They are not, don't have to be artificially propped up. It's not about their ego. It's not about stoking them some way so they'll do what they do. There's an inner compulsion, an inner sense of willingness, an inner sense of something pushing you to be willing to do it. Um, and, and the scripture gives a promise in verse 4. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In fact, that is the motivation. The motivation of it is the gospel itself, is the promise of God is the hope that he gives us. And, and, and seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ yourself, you, you can't declare to a congregation that God is glorious if, if you aren't seeing him as glorious. And, and the very fact you see him as glorious is what motivates you to, to serve and to sacrifice and to give your life away. So, so it's incredibly important. And on a personal note now, I, part of the reason I wanted to review is because I want to just stop for a minute on a personal note and declare to you that I've been the benefactor here at Richland for, for many, many years of having those kinds of leaders. That's when I say we've changed to a plurality of elders. We, we, we did some tweaking and some changing and, and, and are doing some things differently and it will look a bit differently in, in the way that they function and some of that kind of stuff. But in many ways, it, it isn't a change. The, the, the people who have served in that capacity... Um, have been have been a wonderful gift to me over the years. Over these 35 years now will be as we're coming into godly leaders around me. You you think about that a minute. Um, you, it may be hard to believe, but once I was 25 years old, and the scary part of being 25 is I was your pastor when I was 25 years old here at Richland. I was young and I was green, and I didn't and I didn't know everything. Uh, I still don't, but I knew less then. And and God was gracious to me to surround me with leaders who who embodied the kinds of things we talked about here, who were willing to sacrifice. I remember, I can I can remember times in those years when when I would call a leader about something and they were willing to help me or to to do what needed to be done or whatever. And, and I started to think how 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 much I just take that for granted, that they're that kind of leaders, that they're willing to, to, to put aside what they're doing for what needed to be done for the sake of the body at that point. And time after time after time, that was the case. And had those kinds of leaders, I witnessed again and again um, leaders doing things that you didn't see because I was closer to it. I was closer to see them doing things, seeing the sacrifices. I saw lots of those sacrifices uh, that you never saw. You saw some of them because there were so many of them, but lots of them you didn't see, I saw, and there were lots that I didn't see. That's the kind of leaders God has graced us with over these years. It's a wonderful gift. And, and there, there are a number of things that I would attribute to the fact that the doors here at Richland continue to stay open today. And I think we continue to have the opportunity for ministry today. But one of those at the top of the list, probably all of them would fit on one hand, but one of those is the leadership that God has given us 
through the years. Uh, I'm grateful for it. I'm incredibly grateful for that leadership. So that's, that's where Peter goes. He talks about the importance of that leadership, and it, it is important. But then he changes gears, and that's what I want to look at this morning. He changes gears in this text, and you will see it there in verse 5. After he gives that exhortation to elders and, and gives that description of elders, then he says, likewise, likewise. Now he's changing his audience. He's changing who he's talking to. He's, he's really broadening his audience. It's not that he's not talking to the elders anymore. He's just talking to a broader audience. And now he's talking to the whole congregation, the whole church that was there in Asia Minor at this time, 30 years after the resurrection. He's talking to all of them. And he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting there in that text. What, what he starts to do now is he says, likewise, he starts to just give some characteristics, not just for elders, certainly elders have these and should have these, but for everybody, for the entire church, the kinds of qualities, the kinds of things and attitudes that are essential in the church, the way the church ought to look to those who look in from the outside. And he begins with the whole idea of submission. This whole book has been about submission, really, submitting to authority, submitting to, to people, being having that kind of a spirit here and now he just turns and just says it directly. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be submissive to the elders. It's interesting that he, he, he singles out young people. I told you that I was once 25 and I was your pastor at age 25 here. Um, and as I look back on those days, I, I sometimes shudder because I thought I knew a lot more then than I really did. That's, that's kind of the nature of youth, isn't it? We, we look around us and we just think we know better than everybody else knows. And, and we're going to change things. And, and they're doing it all wrong. It, it isn't surprising that he turns here and says, likewise, you who are younger. Why he begins there. And he doesn't stop there. I think he broadens it to everybody. But he starts with youth. Because I think young people are particularly vulnerable to kind of thinking they know it all until they've had the, the liberty of some experience and some time. I think all of us who are older would realize that, that things we thought we knew pretty well, time in many ways has changed. Not all of them, but some of those things have been tempered over time. And that's certainly the way it happens, I think. Um, it's interesting that we, we see the flaws. Now, the, the danger of older people, we don't let them off the hook. Because what happens, I think, with older people is we have two heirs in regards to youth. And now I put myself in that category, the older person. But there's two things, I think, that can happen when, when youth rise up and youth begin to come to the place of, of having some influence in the church and beginning to, to lead, or at least those younger than us as they come along, Two things can happen. First of all, we can be threatened as older people, threatened by the youth, so we don't listen to them. We don't value them. We don't hear them. That's one danger. You just, you just don't listen at all. You just write them off, and they feel written off, and they feel like they have no voice and, and nothing to say, and we, we devalue them. The other extreme, 
I see happening with older people is we jump to another extreme is we just try to be like them. In other words, we see youth uh, passing us by and, and we want to hold on to it, so we try to be like them. We try to emulate them and stay young. Both of those are a disaster. Both of those are a disaster in the church. For older people not to listen and value younger people and, and realize that we haven't done it all right is a disaster. But to jump to the other side and try to be like them is a disaster as well. What needs to happen, what should happen, is that we should exercise wisdom. We should exercise wisdom and realize there's a tempering effect, a tempering effect that should take place as we listen, as we work together, as we do church together. We learn from one another and our wisdom is valuable and their youth and energy is valuable. We, we, we tend to work together. There's a dangerous trend today. I, I, I'm not ready to make strong statements about it, but there is a dangerous trend today in the church world. And that trend is segregation. It's not black and white, yellow and white, or whatever other color you want to call it. It's not that kind of segregation, although that happens, not as much as it used to. But the segregation that's happening today in churches is by age demographic. By age demographic. And, and one of the things that I'm grateful for, again, one of, those, one of those strengths, one of those things I would put on one hand, is the fact that we have not had the liberty at Richland to let that happen. It happens, I think, in worship styles and, and where you have multiple kinds of services in places. Now, that's not all wrong. Don't throw all the baby out with the bath. But what tends to happen is you begin to segregate it by ages. And by a certain age goes to this one, a certain age goes to this one, a certain age goes to that one. We couldn't do that here. We didn't have the liberty of doing that here. We had to do it together to do church together. And I think that is a strength for us to value one another, to value the, the younger, to value the older, the older to value the younger, and to learn from one another is incredibly important. And part of all of that is submission. I mean, the, the, the admonition here is, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. But there's, there's a word to the elders as well. If you lead the way we've just talked about the last couple of weeks... It helps them to submit. It helps them to follow. It helps them to come along with us. And so I believe that's one of the benefits of this plurality of elders model that we've gone to. And, and I want to revisit all of that today. But there's a danger in, in, in just concentrating decisions in just one or two people in a sense. It's, it's a plurality of, of people, a plurality of people who come together, seek God's will together. There's, there's something right about that, correcting about that. One doesn't get out of balance in that kind of a setting, particularly if you have these kinds of characteristics that it talks about as elders. And I think it's easier for younger people to follow those kinds of things. And this is what I want to say about this. It's good for us. I want you to look at a text, or at least hear this text, Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Listen to what this scripture says. Doing this submission, whether you're younger or a little older, submitting to, to leadership who does it in a godly way, in the right way, is for your benefit. Listen to this text. 
here in the book of Hebrews, where we're heading in a few weeks, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. You couldn't see it any plainer, submission. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now hear that, elders that are here. Your job is to watch over the souls of the body and you will give an account for that, a greater account for that. Don't take those words lightly. But this is the amazing thing about this text. It says this, now now it says, let them, and this reference is back to those who are submitting. It says, let them, uh, that's not right, this is going back to the elders. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Let them, speaking of the elders, do it with joy and not with groaning because that would be of what? No advantage to you who are called to submit. So there's a benefit in that to you. The benefit in the congregation who learns, uh, learns to, to raise up godly people to lead and trust that God will work through them that doesn't mean we don't ever ask questions or any of that. It isn't, it isn't by edict, but, but at the same sense, there's a place where submission comes. The leaders lead and there's a submission that comes. And the scripture says, if you, if you don't make that a joy for those elders and those leaders and they have to do it with groaning, you lose something in that. Certainly they lose, but you lose. There's no advantage to you an amazing text. Now, the second thing that the scripture says is, is uh, that we should do it with humility. In fact, you can't submit except humility is a part of that. The scripture says in, in the next verse, clothe yourselves, all of you. Now, that's where he broadens it out. He's speaking to youth and then he broadens it out. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility toward one another. Think about what picture might have been in Peter's mind. Peter's talking about humility. What what do you suppose might have been in his mind at that point? Let Let me share with you what I think was in his mind. Let me read the picture that I think was there. You listen to it. The book of John, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, the Last Supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. Now, you understand, that's Peter. Peter is the one who just wrote the books, the, the words that says, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves, the picture of humility, probably in Peter's mind. He said, Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Can't you imagine that the picture when Peter is saying, clothe yourselves with humility, took him right back to that experience at 
the Last Supper with Jesus. Just, just think how foreign that was. They're, they're having dinner together, and all of a sudden Jesus starts to do something, and they don't know what he's doing, but he comes back with that basin and a towel, and he kneels at their feet, and he begins to wash their feet. Just imagine if that would have been you. Jesus was giving them a picture. The church needs to clothe itself with humility. There needs to be a willingness from the top down, in fact, the top setting the example, a willingness to to serve in the lowliest of tasks. That's, That's what ought to make up the church, serving one another. And it comes from the examples of leaders. In fact, one of, the, one of the things that I think is incredibly important about leaders, and that's why I think this plurality of elders model is such a good model, because, because the, 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 the shift that we're making is for them to see more and more that they are shepherds. Uh, it's not just that we have one or two shepherds or three shepherds as pastoral staff, as vocational pastors, but we have lay pastors, lay elders, who, who shepherd the body. And shepherding the body means you need to be involved in ministry. One of the most detrimental things, I think, in a church is to have a group of people sitting on a leadership board who have no touch with the grassroots, who have no touch with ministry, who are making decisions about ministry that is a foreign concept to them because they're not involved in direct ministry someplace. They're not touching people directly anywhere. One of the best pictures of how I think it is helpful is is we out here have a, a bus and four vans. They're not all out here now, but we have four. And on Wednesday evenings, those buses just spread out all over to bring children and youth to us to minister to them. Now, some of those families come from different demographics, different economic demographics, but many of those families are families that we'd just go to some pretty tough places. And one of the best things, one of the best things for, for my elders, for my leaders, is to just drive that bus. Just go. Just drive those vans to the places where God takes us in His providence to minister to kids and to youth. I think it's incredibly important, humility, that we're willing to do the lowliest of tasks. Uh, and then the Scripture goes on to say, In verse 6, humble yourselves, the same statement again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? He talks about clothe yourselves with humility. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And then he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, What is it about humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God? What's that have to do with it? I I think um, it's it's incredibly important to know that, that you can trust God. You can trust God. As, as we go to the least of these, as we, as we humble ourselves, as we're willing to give our lives away, God will take care of us. We don't have anything to lose or anything to prove. God is our God, and He will be our defender. He will be our protector. He will be our helper. In fact, it says there, so at the proper time, He may exalt you. You can be confident that one day exaltation will come, but exaltation always comes through humility, through the, through the cross. Christ was exalted, but what was the pathway to that exaltation? It was through the cross. That's our example. It's, it's incredibly important to understand 
the promise here where it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The inference of that text is he continually gives grace to the humble. But he doesn't do that for the proud. You, you start letting pride be the driving factor in your life and you just take God right out of the picture. He's, he, he no longer lines up on your side of the, of the ball. He opposes the proud. It, it, is, it is antithetical to who he is. God opposes that. It's incredibly important that humility, humility, that we're clothed with that, that God's grace will come to us. And then thirdly, this is an interesting part of this text, the third thing that it says in verse 7, first submission, then humility. And then it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does that have Why all of a sudden does that pop up? I think it has to do with the idea of trust. Because here's what happens. If you do all that I just talked about, you submit, you live humbly, then then the third thing is, but but if I take care of others first, then what's going to happen to me? If I give my life away, then who's going to take care of me? I think that text is about the fact that God will. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he what? He cares for you. He will be your helper and defender and protector. He is with you in the midst of that. And then it says again, it goes on, be sober-minded. Submission, humility, trust, sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness. Church needs to have sober-mindedness. There, there is a, a way to be drunk with the world. This Western culture particularly, in the Western culture here, it is, it is incredibly easy to get intoxicated by your surroundings. It has an intoxicating effect. Young people, it has an intoxicating effect. It can, it can just get things so out of balance that you start to stumble around as if you were drunk with it. And the Bible says, be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Stay centered. Uh, Don't let media or magazines or technology or whatever it is intoxicate you. Stay centered. The church needs to stay centered. And it goes on to say, be watchful. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The church needs to be watchful. It needs to realize that we have an enemy. There is an enemy that wants to come after us. That, that you need to recognize this. That, that, that spiritual things are not something to play around with. Your faith is not something to take lightly. Um, but it's important to realize we need to be watchful. The Bible says here, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls along like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How does he devour us? How does he devour us? He, he devours us by enticing us and getting us drunk with the world and, and then vulnerable for him to come in and, and eat our faith. It's incredibly important that the church has all of those characteristics. Um, 
Because as you build them into your life, it's particularly this sober-mindedness and watchfulness gets built into your life. When difficulty comes, this whole book, the book of Peter, is about the fact that, that if you name the name of Christ, you, there will be a price to pay. If you hold to the fact that, uh, and, and acknowledge the name of Christ, there will be a sense in which there's a, a price that gets paid in that, and difficulty will come. And if you don't stay sober-minded and watchful, um, you will start to think that, that that difficulty that comes is because somehow God has abandoned you, that he's left you. And Peter says here, that's not the case. Just understand, part of why he wrote the book of First Peter was he knew that there was persecution coming. There was great persecution that was going to come to this church. And that persecution was going to be centered much in the fact because they named the name of Christ. And, and he wanted them to be ready for that. He wanted them to be aware of that. He wanted them to know it was coming. And he admonished them as, be careful, be watchful, be sober-minded, don't be morose, be winsome. You, if, you, if you're here just for the first or second time, you understand that we spent a lot of time talking about a winsome witness to the world. We have a great message to take to our world. But understand that that message is not always going to be popular. And difficulties will come. And as difficulties come, God has not abandoned you. Don't begin to, to give in to that. And the scripture says in verse 10 of this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do this. He will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. That's the promise that comes to us from First Peter. But God wants us to be that kind of a church, the church that he describes here, the characteristics of that church. And finally, that all of that would, would be, would be uh, surrounded by fortitude. Uh, here in the last part of this thing, he, he says, the last part of, of the text, I have written briefly to you in verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. The true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What is the true grace of God? What, what does true grace of God refer to? We began with this back when we started this series. This is really what this book is about, declaring the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? I think the true grace of God, I think what all of this book has been teaching is that, that there are two things that happen as we follow Christ. Um, one is there will be times of paying a price. There will be times of suffering. But that suffering always gives way to glory. Suffering and glory. That's the way of the cross. Suffering and glory. Is, is it, suffering mean it's all bad? No, there's wonderful things that happen. But there is a price to be paid to name the name of Christ. But the promise is that as we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Suffering and glory. If you don't believe that, go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to close with this this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Here's what he says. Peter's writing to these people, to these Christians. He says, For this, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued 
entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's our example. That's to what we've been called. We've been called to do it like Jesus did it. We've been called to do it submissively and humbly and with trust and sober-mindedly and watchfully. But all of it is about standing firm. All of it is by standing firm. Not, not casting away your faith, not thinking God has abandoned you, but waiting for Him to exalt you, waiting for Him to, to bring the way of glory to us. It's continually the theme of 1 Peter. I think it's continually the, the, the way of Scripture. It's the way of Christ to, to be willing to give our lives away, to sacrifice our lives for the sake of His kingdom and know that that will not go unnoticed by our God. That one day, glory will come. That's the way Jesus did it. And if you're a Christian, you are a follower of Christ. To this, you were called, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Stand firm, Christian. Stand firm in this, the true grace of God, the true way of grace. That's the way grace works. As we humble ourselves, God continually gives us grace as we are willing to not revile those who revile us, as we're willing to continue to love people who don't like us very much, as we're willing not to demand our rights to lift up his name. That's the way of the cross. Jesus you know, could, have, could have called 10,000 angels, the song says. He could have done that. He could have. But he didn't. And we've all are the benefactors of that. And as we understand that, we choose to walk in that way as Christians and believers. But you can only do it as your glory and your Redeemer. You have to see your Redeemer. You have to see what He's done. And let that be the motivation of it. So we're going to sing in closing this morning again. I will glory in my Redeemer. Let's stand and sing. I will glory in my Redeemer Whose priceless blood has ransomed me Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Who is my righteousness? I will glory in my Redeemer. My life be bought, my love be owned. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him. I will glory in 
Jesus' name. Amen. 